number of years ago, a documentary was filmed about how consumerism virtually affects everyone and everything. The producers coined a term to describe the dangerous effects of materialism and consumerism with the term affluenza. Perhaps you've come across that word. It sounds like a disease, doesn't it? In many ways, it is. We've already seen the tragic effects of selfish consumerism. You know, Black Friday, they call it, the day when stores slash prices to lure in early Christmas shoppers in one Walmart. I was reading the news, you probably heard about it, when a member of the sales staff unlocked the door at one particular uh, Walmart, 2,000 people came rushing in so quickly, they literally tore the door off its hinges. In their mad dash to discounted items, that employee was bowled over and then literally crushed by the stampeding crowd. Even after a policeman arrived to offer medical assistance, they were pushed around themselves by the shoppers as they knelt over this man to try to help him. When they appealed for some order, shoppers even argued back with them as they went on their way uh, without offering as much, of course, any any help. You, you know, you don't want to help pick anybody up when you want to get that, you know, whatever you've come to buy on sale, right? People aren't as important as the product, whatever it might be. You've waited since early dawn to get it, so everybody out of my way. And that was the attitude that was rather horrific to watch and see. This is affluenza at its devilish worst. The truth is, every one of us is born terminally infected with the disease. It is only one more outbreak in the epidemic of me, myself, and and I. And, and it just so happens that we are living in a generation that has fully bought into this, of fully expressing all of the effects of affluenza, and by and large has stopped offering antidotes for the generation now rising. Antidotes marked with things like self-restraint, humility, patience, and deference. According to one comprehensive U.S. News and World Report, this sort of tweaked my thinking as I read this this news report and I did a little researching. It's interesting to discover that 26% of children by the age of two have a television in their room and advertisers are spending now about $15 billion a year targeting ages two to about the age of 12. 40,000 times a year, the average child in our generation here in our culture will be told that what they have is not enough. It isn't new enough. It's not It's not good enough, it's not fast enough, it's not cool enough, it's not fun enough. One article I read did a study that revealed that by the age of two, children recognize logos and begin asking for items by their brand name. And $23 billion worth of toys will be purchased in 2008 alone. If you don't think kids are affected... Another article I read estimated that in this year alone, more than $600 billion worth of purchases will be determined by two years of age up to 12 years of age from what they eat to the vehicles their parents drive. I came across in this research articles where where parents have formed coalitions. They're writing letters now to advertisers Asking them to stop. 
Stop the commercials. Stop targeting children. It's unfair. It's harmful to their children. And I just wanted to send out a mass email to all of them saying, just turn it off. It's too simple. Actually, the problem is much deeper than television. At least, I hope so. I plan to watch some football this afternoon when I get home. And the problem isn't purchasing items from the store. If you can, you ought to buy them on sale. The problem isn't what you possess. The problem is what possesses you. In fact, the issue is not so much possession as much as it is preoccupation. And the average person today is simply preoccupied by the desire to possess one more thing. Because it is the newest, the largest, or the smallest, the sharpest, the coolest, the most popular, the fastest application of that gizmo to hit the market yet. The latest invention. The original PBS documentary that coined the term affluenza several decades ago defined it as, quote, that bloated, sluggish, an unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses, the people next door. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that Christianity is not a vaccination against consumerism. That's why James could actually write to Christians when he verbally scolded them by saying, you envy and you obtain not. In other words, you envy what those people have, but you don't have enough money to get it for yourself. So you just sit around and wish you had it. He goes on to say, and then you're going to pray for it, but you don't get what you pray for because God knows you're just wanting to add it to your selfish pursuits and pleasures. James 4, verses 2 and 3. My friend, the disease of affluenza does not automatically get cured at conversion. And it's, it's even deeper than just buying things. Affluenza doesn't just affect what you think you should have. It affects where you think you should be in life. In John's third letter, Diotrephes had a bad case of this and he was infecting everybody in the church every time he sneezed or preached or prayed. The Apostle John sort of takes all of the pretense away from this church leader who had everybody bamboozled. It's an ancient Greek word, if you didn't know that. He simply writes it this way. Diotrephes loves to be what? First. He loves to be first. 3 John 9. For him it wasn't a matter of possession. It was a matter of position. John uses a word to describe Diotrephes in a negative way that the Apostle Paul will use. I'll show you in a moment. The same root word in a positive way. John writes in verse 10 in that letter, Diotrephes is not satisfied. You could translate it content. From archeo to be literally at a point where you say, I have enough. Paul used the same root when he wrote to the Philippians, and I'll paraphrase him to say, I have learned to be satisfied with what I have and with where I am. Marcia and I had the delight to sit around our dinner table this past week, as many of you probably did as well. Maybe your children aren't 
grown and able to carry on these conversations as they will when they get older. And we're able to talk around the table along with their maternal grandmother about different settings in the scripture where people gave thanks. Where was it and why was it? Why were they doing that? And what was the culture that they were giving thanks in in their own lives? And we covered a lot of different people. Of course, names like Daniel came up who knew the petition was signed. He went in and just as he'd done before, began to pray and give thanks to God. Of course, the leper came up as well. One of the ten, you remember? Nine of them went running off to rejoin life. And one came back and knelt at Christ's feet and said, thank you. Of course, our own Lord, who gave thanks, knowing that Gethsemane and Calvary were just hours away. And Paul, incarcerated in an underground cell where high-profile prisoners, mostly political prisoners, were either starved or strangled. This was the prison he would remain in until he stood before Nero and then was executed. So let's turn to the letter he wrote while he was in there, the book of Philippians, and read some rather incredible words about his own satisfaction in life. Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't hear me the first time, he says, and again I say rejoice. A little later on he says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. There in verses 4 to 7. Three words in that text stand out to me as impossibilities. The word in verse 4, always. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. There are no loopholes in words like always and everything. And with thanksgiving. There's no room to run. And maybe you read that, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and he's writing that from a prison cell, and he's thinking, well, well that, that's, you know, that's why Paul was an apostle. Apostles are supposed to say those kinds of things. They're, they're, we expect them to act this way. That's why they're apostles. No. In fact, Paul will reveal to us his personal testimony in this rather touching scene. And he will provide for us a cure for affluenza as well. Let me take you quickly to verse 11 where he writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content, to be satisfied in whatever circumstances I am. We'll come back to this in a moment, but you ought to underscore in your mind or maybe in your text that word learned. Key word. Verse 12 I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, different words, same, similar idea. I have been tutored in, or I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. The word content, from the original word atarkes, it simply means self-sufficiency that is within yourself. You say, you have Enough. Have you caught yourself at any point lately saying, you know what, it's amazing when I think about my life. I have enough. I have enough. That's what he's saying here. Remarkable that he'd be saying it in a prison cell. But as he reveals his own thinking process, 
he gives us a, a radical way of thinking and in fact a way to think with thanksgiving and he reveals in this paragraph what we'll simply call three steps to curing affluenza let me give you the first step and then we'll look at the text number one first accept the fact that contentment is not a personality trait it is a discipline Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I I am. Maybe you read a text like this and you find yourself saying, man, I wish I were wired like the Apostle Paul. I wish I were just the kind of thankful person that he was. It'd be so great to have his personality, to be put together by God the way he is, was. I wish I had his gift of contentment. Life would be so much easier. And that isn't what we just read. Paul writes, I have learned to be content. The word learned is the same root word that gives us the word discipled or disciplined. He says, effectively then, through the, through the, the long years of my discipleship, of following after, of learning from Christ, I have in the process learned how to think thankfully, no matter where, no matter what. The first step to curing affluenza is accepting the fact that a thankful, contented spirit has nothing to do with your personality. It affects it. But the root cause of that kind of spirit is a disciplined, transformed mind who's willing to be discipled and disciplined. Every complaint we make deepens the roots of discontent in our hearts. Every thankful word disciplines and literally reshapes our perspective a little more. It is literally the conscious effort of a disciple to model after his master. Little things and big things. Here's a poem. One commentator included a little bit of prose that sounds so simple, but it, it expresses our discontent over things big and small. And here's something we can practice even today. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was autumn I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. So it was autumn, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the Christmas season. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom, the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be independent, sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was retirement I wanted, freedom from commerce and pressure to keep up. Then I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without physical limitations. My life now is over, and I never got what I wanted. I looked up Charles Spurgeon's comments on this particular text in front of us to read what this eloquent pastor said in the 1800s where he wrote in his devotional regarding this particular phrase, I have learned to be content. These interesting words. We need not teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. 
But contentment must be cultivated. Do not indulge the notion that you can be contented without learning or learn without discipline. Contentment is never exercised naturally. It is a thought process to be acquired gradually. So brother, hush that murmur, natural though it be, and continue a diligent pupil in the college of contentment. So well said. The second step is this. We accept the fact that contentment is not diminished by difficulty. It is developed. If you look at verse 12 and and you you recognize words that are freighted with, with emotion, Paul writes, I know how to get along, he says, with humble means. And again, this is the process of having learned. The word humble, by the way, appears in its root form earlier in this letter in chapter 2 as Paul talks about the willingness of Christ to humble himself to his lowly incarnation status to be born to peasant parents to be wrapped in those early hours of his life in strips of cloth and then because evidently Mary and Joseph were both absolutely exhausted and needed to sleep, they put a little hay in the, in the, in the trough and they placed him in there. The humiliation of Christ can't be seen any more dramatic than that. Paul uses the same root word here for his own humility as he's learned to get along with humble means, incarcerated, surrounded himself now by the stench of this dank, dark prison. One commentator suggested that Paul is also perhaps hinting at the voluntary surrender of his own rights to the early church as he is even by them maligned, mistreated, misinterpreted, and now ignored in his incarceration. What he's telling us is that contentment does not come to you because you've conquered your circumstances. And you're in the penthouse suite. No, it's learned as you learn to live with your circumstances. I I know how to live, he goes on, in prosperity. That is, I know how to live with an overflowing cup. And and you think, well, you, you don't have to learn to live with that. You don't have to learn to be grateful when you have everything. Oh, yes, you do. In fact, has it ever occurred to you that some of the most miserable people on the planet are people with prosperity? Those who have more than enough struggle as much as those, if not more, than those who have barely enough. In fact, if I could, let me imagine that Everybody in this auditorium is exhibit A. Compared to the rest of the world, we are incredibly wealthy, right? Change of clothing, roof over our head. We drove here in something that probably worked at least halfway. I was behind this little little car coming to church. It started way back in my neighborhood and going so slow. And I thought, you know, if I tailgate him, he's probably going to pull into Colonial's parking lot. And he did. <laughs> I was so glad I backed off. I honked three times, but I backed off. How contented are you? The truth is we offer thanksgiving 
to God, but we usually put a but at the end of the thank you. Thank you, Lord, for friends, but I wish I had more. Or I I wish I had that one living here. Thank you, Lord, for my health, but could you take care of the pain that I'm feeling in my back? Thank you, Lord, for my house, but I need new tile and cupboards. Thank you, Lord, for my food, but I'd really like more money to go out to eat more often. Thank you, Lord, for this church, but the pastor spends way too long in one book of the Bible. (laughs) Truth is, we have so much, and we don't handle it with contentment because we probably haven't in some time sat down and said, you know what? I have enough. When the average Christian's cup runs over, instead of thanking God, he complains about the size of his cup. Paul says, in effect, I have lived with an overflowing cup and I've lived with an empty cup. Do you notice how he goes in verse 12 from one extreme to the other? From plenty of food to near starvation. From abundance to lacking everything. From comfort in his circumstances to great discomfort. Which means that change along this spectrum does not eliminate contentment. The difficulty of the change, going back and forth perhaps, maybe you're there right now, it doesn't eliminate the possibility of thinking with thanksgiving. In fact, it provides a new environment for it to be exercised and developed. That internal sense of satisfaction described by an apostle who's writing or perhaps dictating by lamplight in an underground dungeon cell. If you want the cure for affluenza, accept the fact that contentment is not a personality trait. It is a discipline. Secondly, accept the fact that contentment is not diminished by difficulty. It is developed. One more, accept the fact that contentment is never a solo performance. It is a duet. Let's go back to the beginning of verse 12 and get a running start at the secret he's about to to give us. I I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this verse is normally taken out of context to apply to just about anything. And there are many ways we can apply this text, no doubt. However, the context of this verse indicates that all things Paul is referring to here are those extremes in life. He's saying, in effect, I I can endure the loss of my rights. I can live through the loss of food and comfort. I, I can survive with joy Even this imprisonment with inner satisfaction that expresses itself in terms of thanksgiving and contentment. He's also saying, I can handle the heights of that posh suite. I can handle the the successes of life and, and comfortable surroundings and plenty of food. And I can respond to that as well with humility and grace and gratitude. In other words, he's saying, I can handle all things, all those extremes in life with balance and grace. I can be satisfied with life on either 
end of the spectrum. How? Through Christ. And the power of Christ, which is within me. Phillips translates this verse, I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. Now, this is not the power of positive thinking. This this is the power of Christ-centered thinking. This is Christ-centered discipline. This is Christ-centered living, which leads to inner satisfaction. The cure for affluenza is the inner presence of the one to whom we have surrendered everything. And so this becomes then a duet. Christ will not make you grateful. He will not twist your arm and say, now give thanks He will not make you thankful, but he will empower your transforming heart and mind so that Paul would say, I can, which can be understood to simply mean I will. I will. I will give thanks at either end of this spectrum. And as I will, God empowers our will with his strength. So we can learn, like this gray-haired apostle sitting in chains, awaiting his summons before Nero and his execution. We can learn the secret to contentment and satisfaction. It's not a personality trait. It's not diminished by difficulty. And it's not a solo. It is us saying, I will, I will surrender and submit like Paul, Daniel, even our Lord to the Father. We will face threats and difficulties and dangers, troubling times, maybe even a dungeon cell, and at the same time, give thanks. We will give thanks. And every time we will give thanks, we reform our thinking with thanksgiving. Always, in everything, with thanksgiving. What a challenge. To say with the Apostle Paul effectively, I am satisfied with everything. And I am ready for anything through the strength of the one I've surrendered to who lives within me, empowering me and enabling me to demonstrate that lifestyle that is cured of affluenza. A life which is uniquely, distinctively supernaturally marked by the one thing our world is missing among others satisfaction and thanksgiving Father would you help us because we have grown up in this generation we live in this culture frankly we are at times unable to recognize The difference between an empty cup and a full cup. Our cups may be full and we think they're empty. This gratitude, this expression of satisfaction can only come as we surrender to you who lives within us. So we thank you for, in your own life, modeling humility and self-sacrifice. For being willing to accept with satisfaction the will of the Father 
As you determined it long before the foundations of the earth were planned, that you, Lord, would become one of us, the God-man. And you willingly drank the cup of suffering, willing to obey the will of triune God. And before entering the garden and then climbing the hill, you gave thanks. Challenge our hearts with wherever we are, with whatever we have, to do the same, we pray. In your name, amen.